So, Lord God, we pray that we would sing your praise right now. We pray that you would cause us to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, do you want to go to heaven? If you, if you do, raise your hand. Go ahead, raise your hand. Let's see. If you want to go to heaven, raise your You want to go to heaven, Tim, don't you? Come on. We, everybody, everybody wants to go to heaven. Now, how many of you don't want to go uh, to hell? Go, go ahead and raise your hand. Yeah, so the question, the question is how to avoid the one, hell, and get to the other, heaven, right? Where, where am I? Where are we? Oh my God, about What's happening? Hello, newcomers, and welcome. Can everybody hear me? Hello? Can everybody, okay. Uh, I'm the hell director. Uh, it looks like we have about 8,615 of you newbies today. And for those of you who were a little confused, uh, you are dead and this is hell. So abandon all hope and uh, yada, yada, yada. Uh, we're now going to start the orientation process, which will last about, hey, wait a minute, I shouldn't be here. I was a totally strict and devout Protestant. I thought we went to heaven. Yes, well, I'm afraid you were wrong. I was a practicing Jehovah's Witness. Uh, you picked the wrong religion as well. Well, who was right? Who gets into heaven? I'm afraid it was the Mormons. Yes, the Mormons were the correct answer. <laughs> Sorry, I've shown you that clip a few times, but it, it makes my point. We all think that we want to go, go to go to heaven, and so we want to know what it is that we have to do or what it is that we have to believe in order to open that door. My friend Andrew does evangelism crusades around the world. One day, years ago, my dad asked him what they said in these cr crusades to, to the crowds. And, and Andrew said, well, we asked them, who wants to go to heaven and who doesn't want to go to hell? And then my dad, the pastor, said to my friend Andrew, well, Andrew, why would anyone want to go to heaven? Andrew thought long and hard about that and it changed his life, and how he preached the gospel. The author of Hebrews argues that Abraham, the father of faith, did what he did because he wanted to go to heaven. That is, he was seeking a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's Hebrews 11. Some people think that that city is old Jerusalem. And so they're willing to start World War III in order to get it. Some think that country, that homeland, is the United States, and they're willing to do absolutely anything to defend it. Some think that the city is their church, Presbyterian, Jehovah Witness, Mormon, or maybe even the 5013C uh, entity that we call the Sanctuary Denver. It might just be worth asking, what is heaven? And why would I want to go to there before I try to get to there. Revelation 21, 22, John sees it, and he describes it, and very few seem to believe it. I mean, almost everyone argues that it's a metaphor, but I don't think John thought that it was just a, a, a metaphor, that it was a metaphor. I think he thought everything in this world is a metaphor, referring to what he saw. In other words, it wasn't less real, but it was more real than this entire world. In other words, he wasn't dreaming, but he was waking from the dream that we call reality or space and time as we experience them. But we're still dreaming. And so I cannot fully explain what he saw to you, but maybe I can help you at least a little to, to believe. Actually, for over a year now, every sermon I've been thinking about this picture, helping to, uh, helping, hoping, hoping to help you and me uh, to, to believe what, what John sees. I'm, I'm sorry that our text this morning is so long, but it's all one picture, and I want you to see in order that you might believe, in order that you might want to go to there. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. John sees a new heaven and a new earth, which is a biblical way of seeing a new everything, a new creation. 
the sea's chaos, it's no more, but according to Isaiah and Ezekiel, there will also be a new sea. John sees a new everything, just as he heard a new everything in Revelation chapter five. Remember, he heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them, praising, worshiping uh, the one on, on the throne. Well, John sees a new everything, which must include a new Jerusalem. And then he sees something else. Verse two, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so you've got to wonder, what's it coming down to? Because as we'll soon find out, not everything is new outside the city, and yet it appears that everything is new inside the city. Everything. So it's like its inside is bigger than all of the outside. In the Chronicles of Narnia, the old uh, land of Narnia comes to an end uh, in a stable, at a stable door. When the children pass through the door, they find an entirely new Narnia. And someone says this, its inside is bigger than its outside. And Lucy responds, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our entire world. When the children enter through the stable door, they find that everything old is new. They've been horrified to see the old Narnia destroyed, but then someone says this, that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here, just as our own world, England and all, uh, England and all is only a shadow or a copy of something in Aslan, Aslan the lions in his real world. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it's different. As different as a real thing is from a shadow or as waking life is from a, a dream. The new one was a deeper country, writes C.S. Lewis. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried out, I've come home, home at last. This is real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Well, that's what we preached before Christmas, right? You can go home. We read these verses and realized that God is calling us to be at home with him in every moment of our space and time, every moment filled with himself, who is the Logos, the meaning of all things. Verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, look, the dwelling place, the tabernacle of God is with man and he will tabernacle with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, look, I make all things new. We read those verses in a a few more last time, but now in verse nine, an angel that looks like Jesus, one of the seven bowl angels, it's like he gives John a closer look. Verse nine, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, literally the seven eschatos wounds, the seven ultimate wounds that remember came from the sanctuary in heaven, the seven wounds. And he spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now that's fitting because it was one of these angels that had showed him the great whore. So now where there had been a great whore, there is this glorious bride. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. This must be Mount Zion. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. In Isaiah, God says repeatedly, I give my glory to no other. So if the city has the glory of God, it means that the city has God, is filled with God. Having the glory of God is radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall 
with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 messengers, or angels, angelos, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, they were inscribed. Well, that would include the names of like nine or 10 boys that plotted to kill their brother, right? But then sold him into slavery in Egypt to profit from his destruction and to steal his glory, only to be saved by the one that they had tried to destroy. That would include names like Dan and Asher and Judah, who remember slept with prostitutes and whores, one of whom was his daughter-in-law and also the great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus. Names, names that mean something. Names on the east three gates and on the north three gates, the south three gates and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12, the 12 apostles of the Lamb. That would include names like Peter, who denied Jesus three times. And wouldn't it include a name like Judas? You know, that comes directly from the name Judah. Jesus picked him, called him friend. They tried to replace him, but if he was replaced, he was replaced with a Pharisee named uh, Saul of Tarsus or Paul, the chief of sinners. And there are the foundations. Foundations are laid before walls are built. It's like God had this city in, in mind the, the entire time, all along. It's a city built with people that have been saved from all manner of things, particularly themselves. So each one of them has quite a story to tell. Each of them is like a pearl. You, you know, a, a pearl is an impurity in the body of an oyster that causes a wound that gets encased in minerals, minerals that form the treasure that is the pearl. Your testimony is a treasure, like a pearl. It's the story of God's grace covering your sin, which is, you see, an open door to others saying, you can entrust yourself to God, for he is relentless love. All that John sees in this vision is like prophesied extensively in the Old Testament, particularly in Zechariah 8 through 14, Ezekiel 40 through 48, and Isaiah 60 through 66. Through Isaiah, God says, your walls, Jerusalem, will be called salvation. That's Yeshua in Hebrew, which sounds an awful lot like Yeshua, which in English is pronounced Jesus. Your walls will be called Yeshua and your gates praise. And you see, that's what a testimony is. A testimony is praise to Yahweh in the name of Yeshua, praise that is entirely inviting to sinners, and so it looks like a gate and a pearl all, all, all at once. Well, the city is built with people, which is exactly what Jesus, Paul, and Peter tell us in the New Testament, right? You yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. And it's why God spoke to Jerusalem in the Old Testament as if she were his house, his temple, his bride, as if she weren't made of dead stones, but like, but like living stones. You see, this entire time, this entire time that God had people build a city of stone, God was building a city of people, of living stones. For 4,000 years, we've gone to war over old Jerusalem. And for 4,000 years, we've slaughtered the New Jerusalem. And yet, even then, especially then, God is building his city. Jesus rode into the old Jerusalem, and he said, destroy this city, and in three days, I'll rebuild it. I'll rebuild it in three days, as if Jerusalem, as if uh, Jerusalem was somehow like his body. Once my old friend Dale had a vision during one of our worship services. He looked around the room and he saw people suffering. Not just in the room, he saw people suffering in Nazi concentration camps. He said he saw people being stoned like in the book of Acts. And he just prayed out, God, there's got to be more. And then he heard the Lord say this, be patient. Come up a little higher and look a little closer. 
And he found himself raised high on the cross, the cross which the Bible calls a tree, raised high in the middle of the sanctuary. He writes, I saw that all of this was happening all at once. Within the walls of the New Jerusalem, the gleaming white walls with flags flying in the wind. This is heaven, he heard the Lord say. This is what the New Jerusalem is made of. Now think what you will of my friend's vision, but that's what the 12 tribes are made of. That's what the 12 apostles of the Lamb are made of. They're made of sin that's been covered in grace. They're made of sorrow that's been turned into eternal joy. They're made of, of mourning that's turned into endless dancing, a dance of praise. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now this is a literal translation. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Of them is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. Of them is the kingdom of heaven, said Jesus. John looked and, and saw names, one of which, which was his own. I think he saw himself as he truly is, already seated in the heavenly places, like St. Paul would write. In spite of all our feelings, weal and woe, writes Julian of Norwich, God wants us to understand and believe that we are more truly in heaven than on earth. While, verse 15, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as, it, as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. This is the footprint of a cube uh, 12,000 stadia on each side. It's so that you can see the new Jerusalem is quite a bit larger than the old Jerusalem. And yet I don't think time and space work the same in the new creation. And so the point isn't 1,380 miles on a side, but 12, which is the number of God's people, times 1,000, which is the largest denomination in Scripture, cubed. In, in other words, there's room, there's room for all. And the point isn't a cube, but that it's shaped just like the sanctuary in the temple because the new Jerusalem is all temple. And it's all sanctuary. Verse 17, he also measured its walls, 144 cubits, that's 12 times. 12 by human measurement which is also an angel's measurement the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass our faith is like gold refined by fire the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel the first was jasper second sapphire third agate fourth emerald fifth onyx sixth carnelian seventh chrysolite the eighth barrel the ninth topaz the tenth chrysoprase the eleventh jackanth the twelfth amethyst the, the twelve gates were twelve pearls each of the gates made of of a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. The 12 stones are like the 12 stones on the breastplate of the high priest who would enter the Holy of Holies. He'd enter the sanctuary to make atonement for the people, to bring the people to God. Jesus is our high priest. He's our high priest who made a way through the curtain into the Holy of Holies. He's the priest and he's the offering, he's the, he's the slaughtered lamb. We conquer by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Jesus is the word of your testimony. And your testimony is a pearl and a door wide open to people lost in, in darkness. And I saw no temple in the city, verse 22, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. God is our temple, he's our dwelling place. And we are God's temple, his dwelling place. Heaven is an eternal communion of grace through faith, which means trust. Verse 23, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. Jesus said that he is the light of the world and then he said, y'all are the light of the world. Understand? We're a lampstand. The church is a lampstand and the spirit of Christ is her glory, her light, the, the fire that burns within. Verse 24, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth, remember it's the kings of the earth that went to war with the lamb. 
in order to steal his glory. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And his gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Everything created by God is good, says scripture. And we all know that God is the creator of everything. And so the glory in everything that's anything belongs to God. He's the good <laughs> in everything that's anything, for God alone is good, said Jesus. And so one day, Led Zeppelin will bring all of their albums into the new Jerusalem, and they'll cry out, Lord, only you can write a song. You are the rhythm, you're the logos in every song, the logic in every tune. You are the stairway to heaven. And Elon Musk will drive all of his Teslas into the New Jerusalem and he'll cry out, Lord, you made my brain, you made, a, you made electricity, you made Nikolai Tesla, and you allowed me to enjoy them all. And one day you will bring everything you think you've made, including yourself, into the New Jerusalem and you will sing, Lord, all praise and glory and honor belongs to you forever and ever. Amen. Verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Well, if everything God creates is good, and God is the creator of everything, then anything that's not good is nothing but a lie. A lie which is the absence of the truth, who is Jesus, the word of God, by whom everything that's anything is created. Verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, or the Gentiles, it's often translated the Gentiles, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Literally, anyone doing the abomination or doing the lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Remember, that's God's choice, who he writes in that book. That's God's choice, not our choice. Actually, Jesus, the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world, is God's choice. It's not your choice that saves you. All glory belongs to God, and if there is a good choice that's in you, God has bled that choice into you. Verse 22, then the angels showed me, or chapter 22, verse one, then the angels showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street or the broad place of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, the tree of life. We're back in the garden, but now the garden is more than just a garden, and in the middle of it are not two trees, there's one tree in the middle of a tabernacle that is a temple, that is a city, that is a whole new creation. Young's literal translation translates what we just read this way. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, bright as crystal, going forth out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the midst of its broad place in the middle of its broad place, and of the river on this side and on that is a, is a, is a tree of life. In the, in the midst of its broad place and of the river on this side and that is a tree of life. In Greek, a schoolon of life. Now that's not the normal Greek word for tree. It can also be translated cross. So John sees something like this. Not two trees, but one tree. And the tree is also a throne. If you're a Bible student, you know that John always pictures Jesus as being enthroned on the cross, which is also a tree in a garden. From the throne comes rivers, uh, like the four rivers of Eden, one of which was the Jordan. And wherever the river goes, it brings life, like a river of blood. The life is in the blood. We'll talk more about that next time. Verse two, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Not some nations, just the nations. That's huge. Last we read of the nations, they were all worshiping the beast 
in bed with the whore, and then along with the kings of the earth, they were being slaughtered by the sword that issues from the mouth of the word of God on the white horse. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They'll see his face, prosopon, his presence, his face. They'll see his face. Exodus 33, 20. No man can see my face and live, says God. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. Eternal destruction, Ionios destruction, comes from the prosopon, the face of the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 2.8, it's the appearance of Christ's presence, the manifestation of his parousia, his coming, that brings the Antichrist to nothing. The Antichrist is the imitation Christ and the abomination of desolation. And this is the abomination according to Jesus in Luke 16. What is exalted among men. That is justifying yourself. It's an abomination. It's your false self. It's your arrogant ego. Well, his servants will see his face and live. That means they die, and yet they live. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. On that day, there will be neither night nor day, prophesies Zechariah. That's how we measure time, especially back before they had clocks, right? Night and day. There'll be neither night or, or day, but one day, a unique day, according to Zechariah. See, I, th I think the inside of the city is eternal. And the outside of the city is this world of space and, and, and time, which means the walls of the city are the boundary between eternity and time which means the end of all time and the end of your time are the same. Uh, the, the, the same, the same moment, same moment from the standpoint of eternity, and yet they could be separated, the end of your time and the end of all time, they could be separated by a lifetime from the standpoint of this earth, which means that we will all be caught up in the air to meet him in one moment, which also means the kingdom of heaven really is at hand, and so the king and his kingdom really is coming soon. In fact, you encounter the king and his kingdom every day, even in the last and the least of these, his brothers, of whom the new Jerusalem is constructed. In fact, every decision to love is the eternal king and his eternal kingdom invading this empty world of space and time. Verse five, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever, for ages and ages. Eternity will fill time, and chronos will be no more, and you will reign over every moment, past, present, and future. I think it means something like that. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you mustn't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. In, in Daniel, the words are to be sealed until the time of the end. But here, these words are to be unsealed, for it is the time of the end. And you see, it has been the time of the end for 2,000 years. Jesus is the end. There will be an end to space and time as we experience it. Sometimes people think I'm not saying that. No, there will be an end to space and time as we experience them now. But whenever we come to Jesus, we come to the end. Or should I say the end has come to us? He is the end. Verse 11, let the evildoer still do evil. What a statement. We'll have to talk about that more too probably. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. Let them. And the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, look, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. 
In chapter 20, remember that we read, the dead are judged according to what they've done. And now we read that Jesus repays each person according to what they've done. He repays them with his reward, his recompense, his pay. It's just what Isaiah prophesied and Jesus declared in the synagogue in Nazareth, the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, that he would trample the winepress. He would trample the winepress. Remember that, that, uh, that his blood and wine, he would trample the winepress alone and he would give us beauty for ashes and a double portion for our shame, a covenant of everlasting joy, a river of life that flows from the throne that is the tree on which he died. His life fills the empty places that was your sin. He, he repays according to your sin, and it's called grace. 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, there's, there's so much more to say, but for now, I just hope you're getting this picture. John sees heaven, and there are people outside of heaven. He sees people outside of heaven. And the doors of heaven are open by day, and it's always day in heaven, and there is no night there. The doors are open, and these people won't go in. Why don't they go to heaven? They don't want to go to heaven. It appears you can't be saved unless you want to be saved. In fact, being saved is wanting to be saved, and wanting to be saved is salvation. We assume that everyone wants to go to heaven, but it appears that some prefer hell. Perhaps, maybe all prefer hell. Maybe all, all of us, maybe all work, work and work and work to get into heaven, but their heaven turns out to be hell. And their hell turns out to be heaven. In one of my very favorite South Park episodes, Satan wants to send Saddam Hussein to hell, but Saddam Hussein loves it in hell. So in desperation, Satan sends Sodom to heaven to live with the Mormons. Bye forever, Saddam. What are you talking about? You can kill me, but I'll be back tomorrow. Not this time. I asked a favor of an old friend of mine to let you in. Let me in where? What the? Hi, what the hell is this place? Hello and welcome. We're glad you made it, brother. Ah, who the hell are you? We're just about to do a play about how much stealing hurts you deep inside. Come join us. Yes, Come let's go. go. You're here forever. No! No! <laughs> no. I don't think heaven consists of nothing, but Mormons writing plays about how much it hurts us deep inside when, when we steal. And I don't mean to pick on Saddam Hussein. You see, I think most of us are just like Sodom, or Sodom, at least for a time. So the doors are open, and we don't want to go in. Why? I hope you ponder this long and hard, but here are a few suggestions. The doors are always open and people don't go in because, number one, the doors are always open. That's why the older brother wouldn't go into the party in Jesus' story, right? Because the doors of his father's heart were always open to his little brother, the prodigal son. That's why the early workers in the master's vineyard left the vineyard, because they didn't want the late workers to receive the same, same pay. That's why the scribes and the Pharisees crucified Jesus. He seemed to let anyone into his vineyard, and there wasn't anyone with whom he refused to party. That's why the unforgivable sin is unforgiveness. Forgiveness is an open door. Jesus said, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened unto you. See, the problem isn't the door. The problem is that no one seeks. 
Romans 3.11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. The door is open, which means that you can't open it. So that's number two, you can't pay. We'll soon read, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. We don't desire life without price. We like to think that we have, have paid. Isaiah says, all your good deeds are as filthy garments. So to enter, we must wash our garments in the blood of the lamb. No one can pay for the blood of the lamb. That's life. That's the life of, of God. You can't pay for the blood, and so your ego doesn't, doesn't want the blood, I guess. Well, anyway, number three, you, you can't pay. Number two, number three, you must rest. You must rest, for everything is very good, and it is finished. Heaven is a temple, and the inner sanctuary is the age to come. That's what Hebrews 9 says. It's the presence of eternity. It's the seventh day. It's the jubilee, the Sabbath of the Sabbath. It's the finished creation where everything is very good, and, well, listen, you can't get better than very good, and it is finished. So number four, you can no longer be a winner. Because everyone's a winner. And number five, you can no longer be a loser. The first are last and the last are first. The humble are exalted and the exalted are humbled. The wolf will graze with the lamb, writes Isaiah. That means no more survival of the fittest. Oh, and by the way, that wasn't life, that was death. You can no longer be a winner and you can no longer be a loser. That means that you can no longer be a victim. You have to see that all things have worked together for your good, and now you're perfect. So number six, you cannot justify yourself. Why? Because you've already been justified. To try to justify yourself is to do the abomination of desolation. It's original sin. It's to believe the lie that you can take the knowledge of the good from the tree to make yourself in the image of God, who is the good and the life. And number seven, you can no longer hide your fig leaves won't work. There are no private parts in heaven, not even your shame. C.S. Lewis wrote, the joys of heaven are an acquired taste. Perhaps the lost are those who dare not go to such a public place. Number eight, you can no longer be alone. It's not good for Ha'adam, the Adam, to be alone said God. So John writes, verse 15, outside are the dogs, that's the beast. Scripture refers to religious people who bite and devour each other in order to justify themselves as, as dogs. Dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral. Pornos, that's whores and whoremongers. The pornos try to buy and sell love. And God is love. Murderers, murderers of life, idolaters of false gods, and, then, and, and or, or that is, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. We've seen in the Revelation that we've all been beasts and whores. That's not what God created. That's what we think that we have created. That's the false self in which each of us is imprisoned and alone, the false. The doors are always open by day. And yet Jesus did tell of a master and a door that appeared to be closed, at least to some. Luke 13, 25, he says, many will seek to enter, saying, Lord, open to us. And the master will say, I don't know where you came from. Now that is quite a statement if it's coming from the creator of all things. It means they come from nothing but a lie. And think about it, with any master. Uh, the master, well, he doesn't know where they, they, they came from, but, but he would know where they came from if they told him where they came from. But they've chosen to hide in the darkness, they've chosen the night. If they said, I've come from biting and devouring my neighbor and trying to purchase love like a whore, well then the false self would suddenly become the true self, right? And they'd see that the door is open and suddenly their eyes would be open and they'd wake from the dream of their own control, the prison of their own ego. Chronicles of Narnia, there are these dwarves and they hear about the stable door, and so they enter the stable door, having heard about Aslan and his kingdom. But you see, these dwarves are easily offended. 
and they're extremely proud. The children suddenly see a great banquet appear right in front of the, of the dwarves. The, the dwarves even take the bread, but they begin to fight over the bread, and they suspect that they've been conned by this good news, and they say, this is only straw. This isn't bread. This is straw. And they taste a rich wine, but they think it's only water from a trough built for an ass. The children are dumbfounded, and then Aslan turns to the children, and he says this. Their prison is only in their minds, yet they are in that prison, and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. Number nine, the doors are always open and people don't enter because they will die. To enter is to lose your life and find it. I hope, I hope you see this pattern and I'll express it to you in these incredible graphics which I myself made. Is that incredible? I made these myself. God said, the day you eat of it, you will die. That was the sixth day. They took the life of the good from the tree and God kicked them out of the garden to the east. And he placed cherubim and a flaming sword at the entrance to guard the way to the tree of life. When the Jews entered the Holy Land and crossed the Jordan from the east, they encountered a, a God-man with a drawn sword. And Joshua took off his shoes and worshipped. Jerusalem was built in the Holy Land on Mount Zion, which the Jews believed to be the site of the Garden of Eden. It was surrounded on two sides by the Valley of Gehenna. The breath of God, like a stream of brimstone, doth set it ablaze, writes Isaiah. The new Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem comes down where the old one was destroyed. Zechariah prophesied, I will be a wall of fire around her and the glory in her midst. God is fire. That's what scripture says. God is fire, God is love, and God is one. Outside the city is this fallen world and the outer darkness. Inside the city is the fullness of eternal love who is our Lord. Around the city, the fire burns away all that's false and purifies all that's true. It burns away the old man and reveals the new. The new Jerusalem is a temple, and in the old Jerusalem was a temple. In the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain in the temple, was the Ark of the Covenant that contained the law that was sprinkled with blood, forming the mercy seat, which was the throne of God on earth, the place of his glory and presence. It was guarded by two cherubim, just like those that guarded the way to the tree of life in the Garden of, Inter, uh, of Eden. And, and, and to enter the sanctuary was to sacrifice. On the cross, Jesus, our high priest, sacrificed himself. The veil was ripped. The door was opened, forever opened. But he did not sacrifice so that we would not sacrifice. He sacrificed so that we would sacrifice with him. He sacrificed so that we would sacrifice ourselves with him. So we would present ourselves a living sacrifice. So we would lose our lives and find them. So that we would begin to love as he has always loved us. You see, on the other side of the veil in the temple was an entire new creation. You must lose your life to find it. And when you do, you will find him and all things with him. And you will be finished in the image of God, like on the seventh day, you will be finished in the image of God and immersed in the kingdom of love, even as the king of love immerses himself in you. At the end of C.S. Lewis's book, Till We Have Faces, the heroine prepares to meet her Lord and she makes this comment. To be eaten and to be married to the God might not be so different. Get the picture? We are the bride of Christ. And our bridegroom wants us to want him. He wants us to want 
to enter his tabernacle, his tent, and surrender to his love, for he is love. And that's number 10. You must surrender to love. It may scare the hell out of you for a time, but it will become in you heaven for all eternity. You're God's temple, not a metaphor. You're God's temple, you're his heaven to be filled with holy fire. You know, if you said to a four-year-old girl, and I know this because I had two daughters, I had two four-year-old girls, if you said to a four-year-old girl, hey, sweetie, would you like to be a princess? and live in a white castle, a beautiful castle, and ride white horses, she'd say, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. But if you explain to that little girl what it is that the prince wants from the princess, she'd be traumatized. She'd feel abused, she'd hide in horror. So what does a good prince do? He waits, and he romances from behind a curtain or even hanging on a tree until he creates a new heart, a new desire within her for him. You know, all that time that Israel journeyed to the promised land, the promised land journeyed with Israel in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, behind the curtain. We think we spend all our lives trying to get into heaven, and it turns out that heaven spends all our lives trying to get into us but he won't come in until we want to go to heaven. Do you want to go to heaven? <laughs> heaven is your prince and all things with him. Castles, white horses, all things. Nine years ago, some of us had the strangest set of experiences in our old church building down the street at 30th and Vallejo. It started with this video that someone took. It was a video of something black flying across that old sanctuary. It was really creepy. I preached three sermons on it in September of 2010. You can watch them along with the video of the black creepy thing that I stopped showing in church because it makes people leave. But you can watch them on our, on our website. To make a very long story very short, we discovered that our old building was built on an old Masonic cemetery around the turn of the last century. Once we had prayed some demons out of the building, my wife, the church cleaning lady, started encountering ghosts. N not demons, but like people that were lost in darkness. I couldn't cast them out like demons because they just act confused. But on three occasions, I preached to them the gospel. I didn't see them, but my wife and members of our prayer team did. I, I know it's really weird, and so you don't have to believe me if you don't want to, but this is why I'm telling you, on three occasions, some of them left with Jesus. And on the last two occasions, my wife and others, they saw a door. It suddenly opened in those dark rooms under the sanctuary in the old, in the old building. They, they, they saw a door, and through the door they saw green hills and sunshine and like an entire new creation. And Jesus would stand by the door, but these figures cowering in the darkness would refuse to look into his face his press upon his presence. And so I would tell them who, who Jesus is, I would tell them who Jesus is and how much he loved them. In other words, I preached the gospel to them. And Susan would say to me, oh Peter, Peter, I wish that you could see the moment that they look up and they see his face, they're like transformed. The old falls away, the new has come. They rise and they go through the door. But Peter, there are some that won't look up. The last time that it happened, my wife heard Jesus say this, I'm leaving this door here for those that will still come. Scripture teaches that one day all will come. Every knee will bow and every tongue will give praise. All will surrender to love. But you see, what I'm saying is that you don't need to wait. You can do that now. Do you want to go to heaven? Because here's the door. And it's open. 
For on the night that he was betrayed by all of us, he took the bread and said, this is my body. And he broke it. Hebrews says, this is the veil in the temple. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you. Drink of it for the forgiveness of, of sins. Uh, this is the covenant. It's a marriage covenant. So do you see his face with the eyes of your heart? Do you see his face? then just pray this with me. You don't have to raise, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or tithe or anything. Just, just say it. Say it in your heart. Jesus, I surrender myself to you. And so, Lord God, the Spirit and the Bride says, Come, Lord Jesus. And Lord God, I think we might actually mean it a little bit. We confess to you that it scares us. And we thank you that perfect love casts out fear. And that's who you are. Thank you, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. So you see, the, the problem is not getting God to love you. The problem is that God loves you. <laughs> That's a bit terrifying. So do you want to go to heaven? Now, now, you may say, well, Peter, how do I want to go to heaven? <laughs> we see that's not something you can just do. It's something that God has to create within you, and how does he create it? It's, it's that tree. And I think this is such great news. It was there from the beginning. God has never changed. We change. And that's what we'll uh, talk about next week. But all I'm ever saying is, believe the gospel in Jesus' name.